This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Pitchfork, Billboard, and Vanity Fair. And I'm here today with my very special guest, New York Times bestselling author, Anna Todd. Anna is the author of several novels, including the After series, which has been adapted into a trilogy of feature films. Total box office grossed to date, by the way, $150 million. (laughs) But we're not here to talk about after. We're going deep on Anna's 2018 novel, The Spring Girls, her contemporary interpretation of Little Women. Anna, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. (laughs) I'm so good. I'm in LA and we finally got the rain to stop here. So, so good. It's it's wonderful. I can see you're wearing your Arizona State. I'm also wearing my Mitski hoodie. So we're twinning a little bit. I know. I noticed when you got on, I was like, oh, we're wearing the same. Yeah. Hello. And I'm jealous of you being in LA because I'm in Toronto and there's snow on the ground here. Oh. So, I mean, I'll begin by asking you what I ask everyone, even though the answer may be a little obvious here. What's your relationship to Little Women? I mean, it was one of the, well, not the only novel, obviously, but one of the novels that I read as a teenager, and I didn't fully understand it the first time I read it, obviously, because I was like 13, (laughs) but it felt so different from, you know, all the classics we were kind of made to read in school. And some of those I also loved, and that's where my love of classic literature came from. But I just felt like, especially, I feel like everyone says, Joe's my favorite, but especially with Joe, I'm like, I'm sorry, I love all of you. But I just was like, oh, this is so different, especially given the time period that it was written in. I just was like, oh, this is so interesting to have these young women who aren't just, you know, everybody has their own different goals and personalities and flaws (laughs) and characteristics. But I just saw women and girls being written in a different way for that time period that it just stuck with me. And then when I was about 18, 19, I had just moved to Texas alone And I was kind of rebuilding my library for myself on a waitress's budget. (laughs) And I bought the classic $5 or they're probably $20 now, but used to be $5 at Barnes & Noble classics. And I was like, oh, I should reread this because I remember loving it. And it was just a totally different perspective when I was 18 and on my own. And then I reread it again when I was 25. And then I was like, I want to read imagine this in my own way. So it just kind of followed me from my teen years to adulthood, even though 18 is totally not adulthood, but (laughs) felt like it at the time into now. That's fast. So it really, it grew with you. I imagine it's a good book to return to as you grow up because you pull so many different things out of it as you grow up. It sounds like that was very true for you. Yeah, definitely. I When I read it the first time, I remember loving, I loved Joe, but I also loved Amy, even though she was, (laughs) she's obviously... A brat, especially as a child, but I identified more with her. And then as I got older, I definitely identified more with Joe. And then now I am a mother and all this. So I'm like, oh, now I'm at the point where I'm identifying with the parents. So <laughs> it's like a different stage of my okay. life. And this book is just, yeah, it's so good at following you through. Okay. And no matter what happens in the world, especially even more so now with all of the kind of war on women okay. and all this craziness that we're dealing with. It just never gets old. Yeah, absolutely. And I ask everyone, who's your favorite March sister? And I would love to hear your answer in a minute. But it sounds like that's kind of evolved for you. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, again, I know Joe's everybody's favorite, (laughs) but there are different parts of each girl that I really identify with or that I aspire to be, I guess. Especially (laughs) when I first read it, I remember thinking, I feel so bad because she's, you know, R.I.P. Beth. But (laughs) I remember being like, what is her purpose? Because I'm such an analytical person that I have to know exactly why the character is in a novel. I need to know what their purpose is, what we're supposed to learn from them. (laughs) And I just didn't see it the first time. And now she's dead and she didn't even do anything. (laughs) But then when I read it when I was older, I was like, oh, I appreciate her patience. And she's so kind. And she really holds the family together way more (laughs) than I realized when I was young. So I have different favorites for different reasons. And Joe obviously is, you know, the go-getter that (laughs) she knows what she wants. I love that she... Even though I still go back and forth on the Lori thing, it's I'm just never okay. going to get over it. But I love how she went to New York. I love mm-hmm. that she was a writer. I just, I love her strength. So mm-hmm. I have different favorites for different seasons of my life, I guess. Okay. So right now, current day, 2023, which March sister are you? And on this show, Lori is a March sister. Oh, I want to be Lori. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Claim Lori. <laughs> I'm like, wait, I never got that choice before. I want to be, <laughs> yeah. I, oh, I love Lori. I guess I'm sort of Joe with the writer moving from home and hyper-independence. I didn't marry a random German professor, but (laughs) I hypothetically, I would love to be the Lori of this situation. Okay. Well, and so is there anything in particular that does make you a Lori? No. Okay. (laughs) You're just claiming it for today. I mean, I guess the idea that I love the idea, it's the tiniest thing, but (laughs) from the original novel, Lori, the idea that when he kind of has that realization of, oh, I'm not going to be this great scholar artist, maybe that, I definitely can feel that, (laughs) but that's pretty much it. I don't have rich grandparents or this fancy (laughs) life or any of that, so Well, so in my mind, I want to be like Lori. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, we all want to be a rich man about town, palling around. There's something for everyone in in this book. So I would have thought, based on my reading of The Spring Girls, I was like, Anna is a 100% Meg. Meg is her favorite. And so I'm very surprised (laughs) to hear that that's not your answer. I know. I do love Meg a lot. Mm -hmm. I feel like she kind of gets the short end of the stick a lot. Mm -hmm. And she gets overlooked when it comes to Joe. I didn't love the portrayal of Meg in the Greta Gerwig adaption, Uh to be honest. Maybe that's like too fresh on my mind. But in my retelling, I love Meg. And I love the idea that at least in the tiniest way, we're starting to, some people, I guess, I hate speaking for everyone, but (laughs) in a perfect world, we're all trying to be more accepting of women's choices. And I feel sometimes with some of my friends who are really big readers and we just, you know, debate about books all the time. Meg just gets totally just steamrolled because they're like, yeah, but she only cares about men and she wants to be a wife. She wants to have a family. And it's like, okay, but we're all supposed to be able to do whatever we want. That's literally the point of feminism is that we should be able to do what we want. So I feel like she gets a little shit on because she wants this white picket fence life with a man that loves her. And who are we to say that? What kind of love? is, you know, worthy and makes us strong women. I know so many women who are so strong and they're mothers. And I know women who don't want to have kids and knew they never want to have kids. And they're also freaking amazing. So I just hate this idea that we're all supposed to follow the same path. I literally hate it. (laughs) Yeah. And I think to your point, yes, Meg wants to be a wife. She wants to be a mother. And 
in the book, in both the original text and in your book, it engages with those very seriously. The book doesn't end with Meg swanning off to her new home. She has to get settled into her domestic duties. Raising kids is hard. Getting along with her husband, it's difficult. Mm -hmm. We get a very realistic view into those things. And in the making of those relationships, it takes domestic life seriously. So I think Meg is an important character. And I'm going to ask you all about your portrayal of Meg, which is fascinating in a second. But in a normal episode, this is where I'd ask you to recap the chapter of the week. But today, we're, it's all about your book. So Anna, do you just want to break down what happens for us in The Spring Girls, a novel by you? Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> so mine takes place in you know modern society in Louisiana. I picked New Orleans-ish territory just because it's fascinating to me. And I feel like they would totally live there. I didn't really want to do the Northeast Maine, Maryland setting that a lot of even fan fictions, like I read a lot of little <laughs> fan fiction too. They all take place in the Northeast, even if they move it outside of Boston or wherever. But I just wanted mine to be like Southern. And I added this sort of, well, the military aspect was there, but not there in the original. The dad existed, but like we didn't see him every day. And since, you know, the United States is always in a war, <laughs> it was easy to have the father be in Iraq, which was something that I know from experience. I was married to a soldier for most of my life until very <laughs> recently. So I just wanted this kind of fresh new setting that I took these characters from 200 years ago and put into a modern world. I kept a lot. Well, I felt like I kept a lot of their <laughs> traits. I just added it back. There's some chapters that start kind of word for word or almost yeah. word for word talking about being poor on Christmas. And then the original text opens like that. But basically mine follows these teenagers to 19 in a military town where they're just kind of trying to figure out their life and their relationship with each other. Their mother has I changed this obviously, but <laughs> in mine, their mother has a drinking problem, yeah, which I just it just would be natural for me. Like, of course, you would have a drinking problem with all of this going on, and we all have our vices. And I'm like, oh, I talking about my own book is so hard. I'm like, I can put everyone else's, or like, and then some stuff happens, and <laughs> Amy pisses everybody off, and <laughs> Joe and May go to a party. My Beth stays on the earth, and I don't know. I don't want to spoil too much, but okay, I feel like you could probably give a better summary than me because sure. my sort of like ninety kicks in. I'm like, oh my god, read my book. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Well, yes, I mean, read the book. I have read the book, so we can get into a little bit more depth. And again, without spoiling anything for anyone, I'm going to begin actually by reading a brief excerpt from the original Little Women, because I think this, along with you taking the military context really seriously, this Meg arc is the real innovation of your book. So this is from the original text of Little Women, chapter four. That reminds me, said Meg, that I've got something to tell. It isn't funny like Joe's story, but I thought about it a good deal as I came home. At the King's today, I found everybody in a flurry. And one of the children said that her oldest brother had done something dreadful, and Papa had sent him away. I heard Mrs. King crying, and Mr. King talking very loud, and Grace and Ellen turned their faces away when they passed me, so I shouldn't see how red and swollen their eyes were. I didn't ask questions, of course, but I felt so sorry for them, and I was rather glad that I hadn't any wild brothers to do wicked things and disgrace the family. So, Anna, you took that and you ran with that. I mean, you, <laughs> you took this little kernel and you were like, let's make this into popcorn. So 
basically the ne'er-do-well older king brother is a main character and love interest for Meg in this book. What was it about this little aside that got you so curious? And how did you expand it into the core of your book? I just, there was something about the King family in general that it just, I don't know. I, instead of really going in on the aunt being the rich and wealthy one, I was like, what sure. if we focus more on the Kings and she has more of a connection with them? I also just wanted to add some, you know, realistic diversity because yeah, <laughs> there's none in the original. <laughs> Given the time and blah, 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 we know better now. But I just, I had this idea of this just beautiful, luxurious Black family that was so not as chaotic as in <laughs> that tiny snippet of the original, but just that could kind of show, not that Meg wanted their elegance or money or anything, but just the idea that they are kind of the most important family in the town. And then the son being such an activist or such a non-materialistic person. And then Meg thinking she wants fancy things and she wants this high life. And then she realizes, wait, I actually don't want that. I want to Oh, I'm trying to remember what I put in the book and what I put in that potential sequel. So I'm like, wait, did she? I'm like, oh, okay. But basically Meg decides she wants a different path in life. And I love that for her because I think she is often labeled as like predictable or boring. And it's like, no, she's actually really complicated and fascinating, battling within herself of what she thinks she wants or should want and what she has now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I said, With this book, more than any other adaptation I've seen or read, and I mean that, it gets Meg. It pays attention to Meg. It takes her sexuality seriously. It doesn't treat her aspiration toward romantic love as an afterthought. What made you want to focus on her to this extent? I just find her way more fascinating than she's given credit for. I also, not that I necessarily completely relate just for myself, but I do think there's something that now in society, we're kind of like turning against the idea of love. And we keep saying, I just had a conversation with a friend two days ago, literally of like, (laughs) you know, I know I'm supposed to be alone and love myself before I can love someone. But and my friend was like, but I'm really fucking lonely. And I was like, what is this that we do that we're like, oh, I should be alone to be happy. Again, I think we have so much to make up for, you know, the country and all the laws against women and all this stuff we have so much makeup for. So I think sometimes as women, we or just in general, we overemphasize these things and we start thinking, wait, if I want to love love and I want to be happy and I want to be married, whatever that looks like, it doesn't matter who you're <laughs> marrying or I want kids or I don't want kids. It's like, there's so much judgment everywhere. So I feel like I kind of put my own frustrations of society into me And wanted to show that there is more depth than just like, I want to marry a hot guy or hot woman and be rich. There's so much more than that. And there is something, you know, humans are wired for connection. So we definitely in the world now, I'm like trying to say it the way I mean it, but I have a million thoughts going in my head right now. We try to steer the other way. And I just love that Meg doesn't do that and that she's, this is what I one and that's not bad and i tried which hopefully successfully <laughs> to give her an actual human soul so you yeah. understood why she was this way and it wasn't just some you know blah, meg's getting married by and then she's gone without any interest yeah and like we said in the original 
We get a very realistic portrayal of domestic life and Meg asserting her personhood and her agency and being like, actually, you can't treat me like you can't treat me like this, John. You can't just bring seven friends over for dinner and not tell me like <laughs> you have to take equal care of the kids. When Joe does, when she proposes to Mr. Bear, to Professor Bear, she says, listen, I have to be able to write. I have to be able to do my own work outside of the home. This is not going to be a conventional marriage. It's always been a book that treats those relationships with, I think, the realism that they deserve. And what you said just now reminded me also of, you know, Joe's big monologue in the Greta Gerwig film. Women have minds and souls as well as hearts, but I'm so lonely. <laughs> it's just a difficult thing to make peace with, I think, that we all want romantic love in the end. And Meg is not less than for, in your book, saying, actually, my sexuality is really important to me. Like you have Marmy taking her to get on birth control when she's 16, which <laughs> I love. She has bad relationships and good ones. She has she gets a little tired of John Brooke and starts looking at other places, right? And there's also the sexuality is important because we just did, we actually just did Meg's wedding and realized we were doing the decoding of the Victorian flowers. And mm. it notes that Meg refuses orange flowers, flowers from the orange tree. And we looked up what that meant. And the orange flowers symbolize purity and chastity. <laughs> Really? Yeah. And Meg was like, I'm not wearing that on my wedding day. I'm going to go back to my new house. I'm going <laughs> to fuck John Brooke. <laughs> and I think we forget that in this time period, really the only respectable way for a woman to be sexually possessed or have sex was to get married. And there was sexual attraction at play in this relationship with John Brooke. And there's evidence in the text that Meg was looking forward to that. And it's an important part of your book that Meg gets to have this wonderful, fulfilled, embodied sexuality. And that's not something that I see in other, well, because other adaptations are often like written for kind of the YA market. That's yeah. not so much an emphasis, but you really go there, which I liked. Thank you. Yeah, we had a whole discussion, me and my editor, of because <laughs> I think they were also expecting more of a YA or more <laughs> straight up erotica. And I was like, <laughs> it's something very much in the middle. I'm not exactly yeah. sure what this age group is or where we're going to put it on a bookshelf, but that's <laughs> not my job. That's yours. My job is yep. to tell the story. <laughs> so he, he was like, oh, birth control and oh, nude photos of her leaking. And I'm <laughs> like, you know how relevant that is. Yeah. In this time? I was just reading an article a few months ago about how <laughs> one in four boys and girls now in school have had some kind of photo of them or video of them leaked and people wow. are recording more. And I'm like, yeah. And I've even yeah. after I published the Spring Girls, I had a lot of readers write me and say, you know, this happened to my daughter, or this happened to me, or Aww. my ex-boyfriend did this. And I'm just like, <laughs> okay, we write it on. <laughs> so I wanted to touch on that. And my <laughs> editor wasn't afraid, but he was just like, okay, this is a different territory. Yeah. And this is, you know, a lot of conservative reader. And I was like, well, conservative readers are not my readers to begin <laughs> with. So and even when it came to Beth's sexuality, there was a lot of, Yes, I got the most ridiculous, I mean, it felt like a hundred, but it was probably only like five emails of people being like, how dare you make Beth gay? And this is, you know, Louisa May Alcott would roll over in her grave. I'm like, okay, so read another book. It's not that <laughs> you mind your business. If this isn't for you, this yeah. isn't for you. It was just so weird. And even the interracial yeah. relationship between Megan, the Kings, people just, I'm like, you guys, it's. At that time, 2019, and I'm going to keep writing this kind of stuff. Jesus. So if you don't like read my books. Of course, I can't believe you got backlash about Meg and Shia. That's nuts to me. Uh, unless people are really hardcore into 
Megan John Brooke. I'm sure they're out there. Which I can't imagine. (laughs) If you are, please look into that and why. Yeah, sound off, leave a review, make your case. No, but to say that Alka would have rolled over in her grave to hear that you'd made Beth gay, which was my next question, literally, so I'm glad we're there. Alcott is on the record saying, I have fallen in love in my life with ever so many pretty girls and never once the least little bit with any man. So I'm pretty sure she'd be into it. (laughs) She absolutely would be into it. Yeah. So we're there. Let's talk about Beth. Rather than struggling with a physical ailment, you portray her as having what seems to me like a form of social anxiety. She's very inward. She doesn't go to school or socialize until she meets a girl and falls in love with her. And that sort of draws her out of her shell. And I've seen authors portray Joe as queer. We've even interviewed one. We interviewed Kathleen Gross a few episodes back, but never Beth. So why Beth? Why this storyline for Beth? You know, it honestly, I wish I could say like, oh, I planned this. I did this on purpose. But honestly, it just kind of came naturally for me when she first saw her and she noticed her fingernails. And I think (laughs) Beth was very much asexual or didn't have any kind of sexual identity whatsoever and didn't have a lot of socializing. But for me, it just, I know in my life, people that they are with someone of a certain sex and then they just meet that person and they're like, actually, I think I'm totally, this Mm -hmm. is why I've been unhappy for 10 years. So for me, it was this kind of awakening for her spirit, but also her sexuality where she never really put a lot of thought into boys or girls or anything in between and then meets this one girl and she's like, oh, why do I feel this way? I'm getting butterflies and her nails are so pretty in her and more than just admiring someone else's beauty, but that feeling of feeling so comfortable and coming out of her shell. So it really just came natural to me. It didn't, I didn't really think too much into it, really, honestly. It just <laughs> felt like, of course she is. And of course they're yeah. going to be together. And of course my Marmy is Meredith. Meredith is going to be okay with mm-hmm. it, which was also something I kind of, the with Meredith or Marmy, Meredith, the reason I changed to Meredith was because my books get translated into a lot of different languages. So some of my editors, I was like, do you think I should keep Marmy? Because I have all kinds of bizarre names in all my books, but Marmy's mm-hmm. a little, I was like, I'll just update it a little. But I wondered at first, should I have her be okay with it or should I have her not be okay with it? But as a reader, I was getting a little tired of parents who are not acceptable of their child's sexuality. And I just wanted to finally read or write a parent who is loving and understanding. And not every parent has to be that way. And I I have a lot of older, my readership is all over the place, but a lot of older who are mothers. So I just thought, you know, if I keep making somewhat, you know, great parents, I mean, Marmy mm-hmm. has or Meredith has her issues for sure, but yes. it almost became predictable, especially because I read so much fan fiction about everything. In fan fiction, there's no such thing as a functioning parent. So I just <laughs> was like so tired of reading the same, my parents don't want me to be gay or my parents don't mm-hmm. want me to wear makeup or my parents don't want me to be trans. My parents are again, it's like, I just wanted her to be understanding and bring her out of her shell instead of killing her. So I did that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I find that a lot of people just can't bring themselves to kill Beth in these adaptations. Yeah, but, I think we're all just traumatized and we can't do it. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's this very natural thing. At the beginning of the book, she's the little grown-up of the family. She does all the chores. Mm-hmm. She picks up the slack when Meredith gets overwhelmed. It's a relief for Meredith when 
Beth meets this girl and develops this crush because he's like, finally, something just for you, something that is not about being my little adult. Yes. And, I, and I really like that. I like that for Beth. I think you could maybe even make a case for it in the original text. I recall the scene where Beth doesn't want to go on an outing with the other girls. She's like, promise me that I don't have to talk to any boys. And Joe goes, not a boy. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, you could certainly make the case. But I mean, while we're on this subject, like I said, lots of authors do portray Joe as queer. I mean, here at kind of Joe's Boys, we're very invested in like trans reading of Joe. So, I mean, why did you portray Joe as straight? And why does she end up with Lori in the end? Because you were saying earlier, you go back and forth on Joe and Lori. So why that choice in this book? I went very much back and forth of like, what's going to happen? <laughs> but for me, I, and I, this isn't really a spoiler because I've said it a yeah. couple of times. I definitely, it, probably not for like at least two years, but plan on publishing The Spring Women. Oh, so okay. there's like a whole kind of second part of their life. So without spoiling that, I'll say like Teenage Joe is with Lori. Okay. Because <laughs> I, one, I just, it was one of those, the Amy and Lori, when I read that, all of the times that I read it, I was just like, uh-uh. It was only like maybe the last two years that I finally understood and appreciated it and was like, you know what? It makes sense. It's fair to all of them. Joe deserves more than Lori. I love Lori, but I will say that teenage Joe and Lori, yeah, but that's kind of how the book ends. So you don't know yeah. what happened. I mean, it literally is how the book ends. So you don't know what happens after that. And I also, I think, again, I'm like, oh, not spoiler, but huh. I do... I'm very interested also in this kind of sexuality of Joe and how that can okay. be interpreted in different ways. But even teenage Joe is very, she just ends up hooking up with Lori. I think it was just my own, like, <laughs> finally, finally this is happening. Yeah, my 13-year-old self coming back for revenge. Sure. Yeah, I think many people, when they read the book as young people, they're like, why is this not happening? And even Alcott says she got, all kinds of feedback after the first volume of the book was published being like, okay, so when are Joe and Lori getting married? <laughs> and it was important to her not to do that for several different reasons. So I can see you're like, okay, Joe's on a journey. As a teenager, he's the next door neighbor. He's clearly loves her. This makes sense to her right now, but perhaps there's something else in the future. So that's very interesting. I'm excited. I'll be excited to read The Spring Women for sure. And the other thing I wanted to get into, we talked a little bit about this already, but this book really takes place in a military context. And it's definitely a popular choice in the contemporary adaptations I've read to portray Mr. March as deployed in Afghanistan or Iraq. But your book, more than any other I've read, it took the realities of military life and especially deployment really seriously. And you did live for a long time in a military family. So how did that inform your portrayal of the marches? I mean, it definitely helped me not only write it, but it helped me just process things in my own life as well. Wow, yeah, yeah. Because I feel like, especially I read pretty much only romance, and there's so many soldier stories, and they're all like these sexy soldiers who come back from war. And it's like, let's be like, and again, books are to distract us from life. So not every book mm -hmm. has to be deep and dark and real. But right. for me, I just felt so frustrated, especially like I was a very young wife, very young, yeah. didn't even know who I was and saw so many, just so much devastation at such a young age. And so many women who a lot of my friends were older because mm -hmm. I was 
child bride, basically. (laughs) And I didn't really fit in with the other child brides because they were all going to the clubs and partying. And and I just, that wasn't my vibe. So most of my friends were 30s and 40s, even though I was a teenager technically. And they had children. And I would see, my life was obviously not super easy, but it was a lot different for me just, you know, being a waitress and having a dog and going to work than when I would go to their house and their husbands would be deployed and they would be taking care of three kids and not even able to afford childcare and a dog barking everywhere and food everywhere and laundry piling up. I think we, on both sides, we just kind of ignore the reality of it. We either glamorize it to where we're like, oh, you're so strong. Thank you for your service. Or we're like, oh, she knew what she was getting into. She married a soldier. So it's like there's no middle ground where we think of these people as actual people who, (laughs) especially in the United States, the military is, you know, one of the only ways to get free health care, one of the only ways to get college paid for it. There's such an underserved community and very (laughs) much judged and very, and I'm very politically extremely liberal, as you yeah. can tell from my <laughs> books. But I like being around such a, I don't know, I feel like there's just this really harsh judgment of everyone associated with the military must be just super conservative, Trump loving, whatever. And it's actually, that's so not the case at all. And even if they are, they're still human beings that only know what they know. And the more stories we tell from both sides, the more educated all of us can be. So I just wanted to not gloss over the military part. And especially knowing people who were either raising children in military community or children that are now adults that were raised in military community. Even my mom was an army brat. My grandpa was in the army and retired after 40 years. It definitely affects you in a lot of ways that we don't really read about. And Unless you're around it, you don't know that. But even best social anxiety, her dad's been in and out of her life, basically. Yeah. Her mom is overwhelmed. Her sisters are all over the place and chaotic. There's just something that adds to the pressure of their lives when their mom's a single parent. You have the fear of not only if your dad doesn't come back or comes back injured of what that's going to do to your mom and what that's going to do to your household. So they just don't gloss over the military part of it. So I took kind of my experience and just people I knew and met and just pushed it. And I appreciate what you did in the book of Joe is simultaneously an army brat and kind of anti-war in her own way. You know, there's an early scene where you write Amy as like a very young Amy, like she's seven years Mm -hmm. old. They're expressing worry about the dad. And that's like, he's okay. He has a safe job. He doesn't even carry a gun. I'm like, that's (laughs) a lie that they've told Amy to make her okay with it. And I was jarred by that. I was like, how would you explain that to a seven-year-old? And these are, as you were saying before, like the civil war is background in Little Women. It just doesn't touch their lives directly. It's not the focus. And Bethany C. Morrow, who wrote a really excellent Little Women adaptation that portrays the March family as Black and living in a freed person's colony around the time of Reconstruction. I haven't heard of that. Yeah. It's called So Many Beginnings. I love it. You know, but talking about that book, she was like, okay, if the Civil War was background noise to you, then we are we do not have the same life experience. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you do an interesting thing here by making, it's not like they Skype with dad once. It permeates the book. Every March kid has their own relationship to the army and what they think about it. And yeah, I mean, for my part, knowing what I know about the real world Alcott family, I, I don't know that they would have been supportive of the wars in Afghanistan or Iraq. And we know that Alcott wrote at length about wanting to be a soldier for the Union Army in the Civil War. But I tend to think that she'd be on the side of anti-war movements today. What do you think? 
I definitely think should be anti-war. Yeah. (laughs) I 100% think so. And I think there's just this kind of really thin line between a lot of people and being anti-war, but then I've only met a couple in all of these. The only people I've ever met that are this way are 20-year-old soldiers who are like drunk as hell (laughs) saying like, I'm going to go to war and kill you know, blah, blah, blah. But for the most part, when I asked people as I was growing up in this environment, I was asking, you know, what made your husband join or why are you reenlisting? And it was, I've never heard anyone say, oh, because I love war. I love the United States. Or it was never really about that. It was about realistically, I have three kids and this is the only way to have health insurance. And even my ex-husband, he reenlisted and we had this really big year-long argument, basically, because I was like, absolutely not, and under no circumstance can you stay in the military. And he had already been diagnosed with PTSD and all of this stuff. So, and he, at the time, was 24 years old. And I was like, there's another way. There has to be. And the older our son got, we have a special needs child who has autism, Mm -hmm. epilepsy, ADHD, all the things. And he has to get MRIs every, now it's only once a year, luckily, but it used to be every six months. And I remember him just telling me, not my son, but my ex-husband saying, how are we going to pay for a $5,000 MRI if I don't reenlist? And I was like, I don't know, but we will, you know, I can get another <laughs> job. And I already had two jobs. And he was like, it's impossible. This is the only way that we can do this. And we were both extremely liberal people. Uh-huh. And I'm never, he's absolutely not a war supporter or war sympathizer by any means. And the harder, it got a lot harder for, when he first joined the army, because I grew up in an Air Force Army family where my mom is now very different politically. But when I was younger, she was like a George Bush fangirl and like leather jacket with a flag on it. And I just remember being like, yeah, USA. And then as I got older and started realizing what was, or at least what I've think, in my opinion, is actually going on and why we're going to these wars and why we're bombing people and not bombing, just all this stuff, it became harder (laughs) for me to be in that environment. And it became harder to like normalize the fact that, you know, at 18 years old, seven of my friend's husbands deployed and three came back. Wow. It's not a normal thing. It took a long time for me to, I still haven't fully processed it because I don't think that's possible, but it took a long time for me to realize how affected I was and how affected all of these other people were. Yeah. So I think there's, I hope that as time goes by, we learn a little bit more, understand a little bit more of both sides and that, and people will say, sorry, I'm just going on a tangent, but people will say, you know, people around the army or the military, they never denounce this or they, especially with all the Trump stuff, not to always be political, but here we are. So I am, especially around the Trump stuff. They're like, I never see, you know, soldiers denouncing him. It's literally, they're not allowed. There's no way they're allowed to publicly talk about the president. <laughs> I just wish we could think more about the people that are suffering and the people that don't come back sure. and the people that only join because they're in a small town in Iowa and a recruiter comes to their high school, which is also very shady and should not be legal, but goes to their high school and recruits them on this promise of this American dream and insurance and healthcare and any, you can travel the world. Of course, (laughs) what else are they going to do? Especially in an economy Uh where there's no jobs, nobody can afford to go into $50,000 of student loan debt. 
I just think there's another side that we can look at while being anti-war and being liberal, but also understanding that not everybody has that same luxury or same thought process. Yeah, no, I you bring up so many important points. I, I mean, wrenching things from your own life. Thank you for sharing all that, first of all. Of you know, I think a person can be liberal and anti-war and understand that there are so many systems that are broken in the United States that you know, if, how am I going to afford university? University is not free. Healthcare is not free. It will be free if I join the army and recruiters can make all kinds of false promises about that, right? And prey on people who are, you know, economically vulnerable and underserved, right? I think you bring up so many interesting points and having heard you, I can see how, you know, the March family always we open on, you know, they're too poor to afford Christmas presents. I can see how a, even a modern day March family would get into this because, you know, Beth is extremely sick. Like, how else are they going to afford medical yeah. care? Joe wants to go to college. How are we going to make that happen? Right. I, I think we're agreed that a lot of systems in the United States are just broken. And just the way that military spending in the United States is 70 times higher than spending on healthcare education. That's saying something, yeah. right? It's all interwoven. I remember, this is a bit of a tangent, but when I was 17, I was dating a guy that I met on Tumblr. <laughs> Classic. He lived in Idaho. I lived in BC. So I was visiting him during the summer. He turned 18 and we went to the post office for him to register for the draft. And I was like, excuse me, you have to what? Because I'm Canadian. And I was like, he's so weird. I'm looking at my, you know, my little five, seven, 18 year old boyfriend signing up to be drafted into the army. I'm like, something is not, <laughs> I don't it's know about this. very yeah. bizarre. Yeah. It's such a, my uncle, <laughs> my grandpa, everyone, I married a soldier <laughs> at 18. It was just such a Part of my life. And in my town, the military people were the rich people, even though they're mm. not at all. And they're right. even underpaid, no matter how much billions, trillions of dollars we spend on the military. Yeah. They're very underpaid. So, but that from my town, the Air Force people were like here, and then the rest of us were here. Yeah. So I just grew up in this ecosystem and I just thought, oh, that's so cool. And then as I got older, I was like, yeah. oh, this is weird. And then now when I see recruiters at high schools, I'm like, absolutely not. It's just a yeah. different perspective. But we also were sold on this. You know, I'm so tired of hearing 50 plus year old people be like, well, in my day, we did it. Yeah. In your day, you had a one income household and you all could eat every day. So no, it's I, not the same American dream as now where even uh -huh. luckily I didn't have to go. I went to community college and I didn't <laughs> have to finish because I became a writer. Thank God. But <laughs> if I would have had to, I would have been screwed. I grew up knowing there's no way I my parents are going to be able to put me through college. There's no way uh -huh. I'm going to go into debt. I My cousin was the only one in my family that went to college and now she's still paying $11 a month for the rest of her existence to some gross shark loan company for an education she doesn't get to use. So wow. I'm just like, we're in two totally different worlds, people. So it drives me yeah. crazy. When even my grandpa, who's very much army retired lieutenant, he mm -hmm. always is like, you young people, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, your generation <laughs> ruined it for all of us. Yep. And now we're suffering because of what you did and your mm -hmm. math. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we don't need to get into the entire history of the anti-war movement, but I, I think we're on the same page here. And yeah, I mean, I appreciate what you do in this book to sort of shed some light on the rea the actual reality of living in a military family and having a family member be deployed. 
the economic realities of that situation. So that was a really interesting part of that book for me. And now I want to end on this and I want to end on it because I'm kind of assuming that most of your interviews start with this. You began your career writing fan fiction, right? Mm -hmm. And many authors do, including yours truly. I know that your novel After began its life as fan fiction. There's a common misconception that my book, Both Sides Now, began as fan fiction, but it truly didn't. I would own it if it did, but it wasn't. (laughs) Anyway, one of the things we have in common is that we didn't change our names and identities and pretend we never touched fan fiction. So I have a couple of questions here. The first one being, would you call the Spring Girls fan fiction? Absolutely. Yeah? Yes, (laughs) definitely. And what do you think is the effect of putting that label on a, this is a paperback, buy it in a bookstore book? You know, for me, I am really proud of it. I'm really (laughs) proud that I can write something that I'm passionate about, whether it's inspired by something else or not, and have it be in a bookshelf. So I very much am all about fan fiction. I love it. Even with my, I have an imprint now with Wattpad. And we're ac- we're accepting fan fictions as submissions. I am a hundred percent supportive of fan fiction. I love the idea that so many people get a start in fan fiction, and I know a lot of authors, even some of my favorites. I'm like, I read your fan fiction on Tumblr, and now they're pretending like they never wrote fan fiction, and they'll say it like boldly in the interview, like, "No, I didn't. I've never." Written. And I'm like, "What?" It just takes away from so many of us who have had such great time, even just mentally. Mm-hmm. Fan fiction for me, reading it, writing it is such a positive impact on my mental health of just being able to write with no pressure and make it fun. Mm-hmm. If I would have started out writing after as, which in the themes of it and the actual plot is totally mm-hmm. original, but the characters right. just happen to be people. Why is that any less prolific or any less fancy than yeah. me sitting and staring at a blank page? It's just this bizarre thing where, I wish other writers and a lot of the, you know, negative feedback comes from other writers. So like, I wish we all just in our own thing and mind our own business because it would just make it a better community in general. But yeah, I will absolutely never denounce fan fiction and I love it. I love reading it. I love writing it. I'll always, even my editor, when we were talking about this, he was like, should we say retelling or fanfic? I'm like, those are the same thing. <laughs> and uh, even with Marvel movies and all these movies now, I'm like, you guys, they're all fan fiction of the other ones. Like, <laughs> but the men on the internet are like, no, these yeah. are, don't you dare. And I'm like, no, you're watching 20 films of a fan fiction. Yeah. It's the same thing. I agree. I think fan fiction really gets devalued because it is a, an overwhelmingly female, queer and mm-hmm. trans undertaking. <laughs> it's yeah. non-commercial. It was the only, you know, when I was 11 years old and it was like, I like Sister of the Traveling Pants. I want to write my own. I can do that. <laughs> I just put up my little chapters on the internet and get feedback in real time. It was an important thing for my development as a writer. And I think it really is stigmatized. I think authors who began and learned to write and got their first feedback on fanfiction websites are sort of pressured to keep that quiet. And I can see why, because I got all kinds of harassment around oh, yeah. my debut novel supposedly being fanfiction, even though it wasn't. But I think it's interesting also what gets called fan fiction and what doesn't. Have mm-hmm. you heard of a book called March by Geraldine Brooks? Yes, actually. I haven't read it though. Have you? So for anyone listening who hasn't read it, the basic premise of March is that it's little win from the dad's point of view. It's, you know, mm-hmm. what did he get up to during the Civil War? And I think it's telling that there have been a zillion interpretations of Little Women, but this one, the only one that focuses entirely on the father and his wartime experience, that's the one that won the Pulitzer Prize. 
That is so bizarre. I did a, speaking of Pulitzer Prize, I did a panel once in the Philippines with a Pulitzer Prize winning author and another author who was a very New York Times, Times Five author. Pulitzer Prize author was so kind and so great. And he was fascinated by the whole, he was like, what, how many reads do you have? How many books do you sell? That's crazy. But then we were doing this Q&A and the email writer who was, you know, talking about her book and she was, very much kind of critical about fan fiction. And she said, you know, my newest book is a, (laughs) an interpretation of Hemingway's first wife and what she would be doing in her story. And I was like, and I said it, I almost didn't, but I was like, I'm going to do it because she just went on about fan fiction, blah, blah. And I was like, well, is it a biography? And she was like, no. And I was like, well, then that's a fan fiction. And she just froze. And then the Pulitzer Prize winning author was like, yeah, that is fan fiction. I could tell that she absolutely, one, had never considered herself fan fiction writer. But yeah. no matter how much research you do or whatever you do, you're still writing about a person who existed in the world and creating a life for her. That's a fan fiction. Yep. And it just after that, she was obviously not happy for a while. But then two days later, she came up to me in the hotel and was like, you know, that was a really good point. I'm like, yeah, yeah. But it's just bizarre <laughs> the categories that things get into. So I'm not surprised that the male gaze of Little Women was the non-fan fiction Pulitzer Prize <laughs> novel. Yeah. I'm, first of all, I'm glad you spoke up. I'm glad the other author got behind you. <laughs> I know. I was like, now no one can argue yeah. with the Pulitzer Prize winning author. <laughs> <laughs> I've read March. I think it has serious shortcomings as a book, principally in its treatment of slavery. Basically, Mr. March goes on a whirlwind romance with an enslaved woman, and I'm just not ah, about that. <laughs> yeah, that's not my jam. No, but this author, Teresa Nielsen Hayden, has said March is fan fiction. And the only difference between fan fiction and Geraldine Brooks's project is that it's dreadfully respectable. It has this patina of literary fiction. Some fan fiction is prestigious and pre- respectable and wins the Pulitzer Prize and some fan fiction is just continually denigrated and it kind of sucks. Yeah, it definitely does. <laughs> yeah. Last year, I presented at the David Foster Wallace conference on his novel Infinite Jest, which is often scholars agree. They're like, oh, this fascinating interpretation of Hamlet. So Hamlet fan fiction. Yes, literally. <laughs> I presented on the history of fan fiction and the influence of fan fiction on Wallace because it began really as this underground zine-based thing responding to broadcast television. And that's a lot of what Infinite Jest is about. There's a scene in the book where a character gets obsessed with MASH and writes tons of MASH fan fiction. (laughs) It's all in there. He had knowledge of this subculture. And I was just presenting this as Infinite Jest is fan fiction. When you say, here are all the links to Hamlet and the the characters that are based on this character and that character, I'm like, this is fan (laughs) fiction. It's a retelling. And then at the end of the presentation, I had everyone write their own Infinite Jest fan fiction, which was, it was a lot of fun. And I spoke about you in that presentation because you stand out as this one, this author who's really proudly bridged that gap between something that people do non-commercially when they're young and that helps them bloom into authors. And I think people were really excited to hear about oh, your story. You. So, yeah. So, I mean, Anna, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Where can people find you online? Where can they buy your books, watch the movies, all that? You can find me online. Most of my usernames are Anna Todd on yeah. Wattpad. I'm still Imaginator 1D because I don't want to change it. <laughs> so I haven't changed my username there. And that's where you can find the original okay. workings of my first work. And bookstores, you can find my 
all of my books in pretty much any bookstore or online. I don't want to push to Amazon, but they're on Amazon. Yeah. If you can't find them <laughs> in your local bookstore, but try your local mm-hmm. bookstore first, please. Yeah. Thank you. It was so fun. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Anna. And thank you, everyone, for listening to Joe's Boys. You can follow us on Instagram at Joe's Boys Pod. Leave us a rating, a review. Hit subscribe if you haven't already. We've got lots of fun stuff coming down the pipe. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. You can find me online at PeytonThomas.ca. You can buy my book, Both Sides Now, wherever books are sold. And I hope that you do because... I'll be candid, like this is kind of a tough moment for trans YA, especially there are states where schools and libraries aren't allowed to purchase my book, where they have to return their copies to the publisher. So buy both sides now, buy it for yourself, buy it for the trans kid in your life. Thanks so much. And we'll see you next episode. (laughs) 